I'm always happy, as you know, to be back with you good folks here in Brisbane. Uh, I was encouraged by one or two comments I've had from folk in the fellowship and concerning the message I gave for six weeks ago on Esther. I had no idea at the time that it would, it would prove to be so helpful. Well, interestingly, this morning we're looking at another Old Testament character, and this time it is Daniel. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have so much you want to say to us. We thank you for your willingness to speak again and again into our lives, to help us to understand better who we are in our Lord Jesus Christ, what our God-given potential is, and what are the plans you have for our lives. And we ask that by your Spirit, it will enable me to speak your word clearly this morning. And by your Spirit, enable all of us to respond in whatever way you want us to respond to what you're about to say to us. In Jesus' name. Let's take time to read the opening verses of Daniel. I imagine most of you, perhaps all of you here this morning, are familiar with the story of Daniel. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. And the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of the court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, Young men, without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. We'll stop there just to save time because we have a lot of ground to cover. Daniel had an extraordinary life and ministry. Daniel was a statesman but he was also a prophet. Our Lord Jesus describes him as a prophet in Matthew 24:15. And like all believers in God and perhaps particularly like prophets he was both resented and respected by human beings. But more important, he was highly esteemed by God. As we know from chapter 9 verse 23, he was highly esteemed by God and greatly used by God both in his own day and since through the book that tells his story and bears his name. In his youth he was dragged off along with many others from his native Judah to a life of exile in Babylon. I think it's hard for us to imagine what sort of effect this must have had on those who experienced it. He was a teenager perhaps, uprooted from his home and family and marched off a very long distance to a foreign land, a different language, a strange culture, all sorts of different things to come to terms with. That must be a real, real difficult situation for any person to handle, especially someone who's only perhaps in their teens. But we know from the story 
but he rose to be the Prime Minister virtually of Babylon. What was the secret of this man's life? There are things we can learn from looking at the secrets of Daniel's amazing life. Well, the first secret of his life and his success, I suggest to you, was the defilement he resolved to avoid. Because, you see, if we'd read a little further in chapter 1, we'd have read that having been assigned special diet, special food, special wine from the king's table, in verse 8 we're told Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. He knew as a Jewish boy that there were certain foods that were forbidden to Jewish people. But more than that, he probably knew enough to suspect, if not actually to know, that in the slaughtering of the animals from which the food would come, the meat would come for the royal table, there were some strange rituals involved, no doubt. Now if there were, that shouldn't surprise us in the slightest, because today, in our own UK, the Muslims exercise a strong influence over the slaughtering of animals for human consumption. They prefer, and indeed demand in certain situations, I think, get away with it, that the, uh, the animals slaughtered, at least for their consumption, ought to be slaughtered in a duly ritual sacrifice proceedings which involves Islam, which involves the name of Allah, praying over animals that are being slaughtered for food. And of course, Christians are rightly concerned about this. Anyway, Daniel determined that he was not going to touch any of this first-class food and wine that was available to him from the king's table. In Babylon, he was selected to be taught and trained for the king's service. So he faced this dilemma of saying no in a situation where he knew very well that would not gain him any favours. The man responsible for the training of these young men was very concerned when Daniel refused to have this special diet because he said if, if you do not develop better as, at least as well as the other young people who are being treated with this diet then the king will be very angry with me and then I'll, I'll probably be executed. However, Daniel proposed a test. Ten days, vegetables only to eat and water only to drink. Then the ten days, Daniel and his friends looked better, felt better, behaved better than all the other youngsters who had been feasting on what came from the king's table. Now what about us? What about 20th century, 21st century Christians now? If I was asking you, what do you see as the greatest danger zone in terms of our being defiled today? Well, I think, not surprisingly, all of us perhaps might say, well, we live in a, a very pagan environment, really, in the UK. There's all sorts of demonic influences aimed at us. The media and uh, the, the press and uh, certain magazines and television programs and all sorts of things are really anti-God in what they are presenting. So we've got to try and avoid all these kind of things. Yes, yes, 
But I want to point you to two other sources of defilement problems. First of all, there's the internal one. You see, Jesus said clearly in Mark chapter 7, verse 14, he said one day, speaking to the crowd in general, Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. It's what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. And the disciples were frankly puzzled and they asked for an explanation. And Jesus said, Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? Well, it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach and then out of his body. He went on, What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean or from form from within. Out of men's hearts come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. For a start, is it not rather a sobering thought that enlisting these danger points that lurk within the human heart our Lord Jesus puts in the same bracket slander, envy, greed, malice, deceit along with theft, murder and adultery which are forbidden in the Ten Commandments he brackets them all in the same brackets in other words we must learn to recognise that even things like slander and arrogance and envy and greed can defile us in God's eyes. Of course, the obvious answer really is the fact that as believers we have been born again. We'll come to that in a moment. The other source of potential defilement for the Christian is in a way the more, more serious of the sources. If we go back to Leviticus chapter 19 and remember the time when the Jewish people were being planted in a new land and it was a land which had hitherto been occupied by some very pagan people and God went to great lengths to warn his people what they must avoid when they entered their new land. And among the many do's and don'ts, we come in Leviticus 19.31 to this command. Do not turn to mediums or seek out spiritists, for you will be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. And to this day, this whole occult area continues to flourish and is a source of potential defilement to all who risk going into it. Now it's very common practice for people to wonder not intending to offend God. No intention of offending God whatsoever. We used to have nurses in the church in Govan and I would hear them talking and saying, you know, our pals in the hospital, they were going for a night out to get their fortunes told a mere £35 a time. They wanted us to go with them. Oh really? Oh really? And we know that the use of the Ouija board and all sorts of things like that, they're common practice. And people don't think there's any harm in them. Oh, but there is. You see, it doesn't matter what your motive is. If you put your hand in the fire, the same thing is going to happen to it. It's going to get burned. Never mind what your motive is, that makes not a bit of difference. It's 
where you live with your hand that makes a difference. You put it in the fire. And people who wander carelessly into that forbidden territory of the occult, they do so at great risk. And the Bible tells us that they don't come out the same way they went in. They come out defiled. Because, you see, while there were some quacks, some pretenders in that whole occult area, who, in one sense, are pretty harmless probably, there are many others who are not. They are genuine practitioners in the supernatural. Only it's the demonic supernatural they're tapping into. And that's where the danger lies. And they bring prophecies, they bring sort of words of knowledge to people that are absolutely spot on, accurate. How? Because they're tapping into supernatural power, that's how. Mm. But you see, people who get into that area of the occult, even once, is once too often, and something happens to them. Over the years, from time to time, I've had to be involved in the ministry of deliverance, praying for people, ministering to people who for various reasons, had wandered into this forbidden territory and were damaged by it and were in bondage as a result of it. And almost every congregation I imagine in the land in this Christian, so-called Christian country has people in it whose lives are adversely affected to the present day because 20, 30 years ago they went into forbidden territory and they came out defiled. And what's the answer to these sources, these problems of potential defilement? Well, number one, the internal thing. The answer to that is simple and clear and obvious in a sense. Once we are born again, we are changed more radically than we believe we are. Yes, we are born again of God's Spirit and we are brought into a new relationship with God and everything in our life is made new. That's what Paul teaches in 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anybody is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. You see, we don't think of it usually in these terms. Occasionally evangelists may use this illustration, but when a person becomes a Christian, they experience a heart transplant. Yes, of course we do. In Ezekiel, God promised that he would give people new hearts and put his spirit within them. And that's what happens when an unbeliever comes to the Lord Jesus Christ. That divine helicopter swoops down and grabs us and lifts us out of that kingdom of darkness and transfers us into the kingdom of Jesus. We'll come to that in a minute because that's mentioned in Colossians 1.13. That's exactly what Paul says to these Christians in Colossae. He reminds them of the radical change in their lives because of what God has done. He says, God has rescued us from the dominion, the authority of darkness, and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. That is the drastic change that takes place internally when someone becomes a Christian. Most new Christians don't understand this. They haven't the time to kind of grasp all this stuff. And in the second chapter of Colossians, verse 15, 
Paul emphasizes the victory of Jesus on the cross, having disarmed the powers and authorities and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So once I am born again, I have a new heart. But, ah, but, why do so many of the letters in the New Testament go into great detail to teach Christians what to avoid and what to embrace in living out their new Christian life. Because, although we have this new heart, we still, in a sense, hidden within us, have the seeds of every sin still lurking in our hearts. And that's why we have to be vigilant and on our guard and quick to repent when we allow these seeds to sprout. But you see, when a person has gone into the area of the occult, it is so serious, it is so potentially dangerous and harmful, that when people become Christians, they ought to be questioned about this. Have you ever been into that whole area? Have you ever had your fortune told? Have you ever, you know, gone into this area of playing games with the Ouija board to get information from God. And by the way, the two reasons why people go into the occult, apart from sort of fun, entertainment, is A, to get supernatural knowledge, and B, to get supernatural power. And they can get both, but they come with a price tag. Some people go into the occult to get physical healing. And they get the physical healing. But it comes with a price tag. Because it usually follows, what usually follows is mental illness. Oh dear. High price to pay for physical healing. Anyway, the point I'm emphasizing is that anybody who has been in that whole occult area, either before they became a Christian or since they became a Christian, ought to be encouraged to repent specifically of that incident, these incidents, these events, specific repentance, specific asking forgiveness from God and renunciation. Saying to God, by your grace, I want nothing more to do with it. I renounce it completely in the name of Jesus. I close the door and with your help, Lord, it will stay closed. So, enough of that. The defilement Daniel resolved to avoid. What happens when you dare to stand against the tide, as Daniel did when he took that first step of refusing the first-class fare from the king's table? That, that was kind of insulting the king in a sense, and saying, I don't want your fancy food. I'll have some vegetables, thanks very much. He stood against the tide. He was being trained for the king's service, and he was supposed to go through the training program the king laid on for him. But he said, no. What happens? When you stand against the tide as a believer in God, huh? well that's when you actually discover in the experience and reality that God is for you. He's involved in what's going on. What does Paul say in Romans 8.31? He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? The very idea that any power, be it human or demonic, can effectively be against us when the living God of the whole universe is for us 100%. So, we must bear that in mind. Yes, there are potential areas of defilement in the world around us and from our own hearts and from the whole area of the occult. But as we live in the victory of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, none of these things 
may defile us ever again. What followed the defilement Daniel resolved to avoid? Well, what followed is very interesting because we read of the equipment he received for his task. No soldier is sent into battle with his beach shorts and his sandals on. No, not really. He is suitably dressed and he's hopefully suitably armed so that he can withstand any enemies he has to engage. And God does not send any of his children into the spiritual warfare that is ours on planet Earth without adequate equipment. Hmm. Well, it's very interesting to discover the particular equipment that was given to Daniel. We, still in chapter 1, find that uh, at the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented these four young men, Daniel and his three friends, and the king found nobody else as well advanced, as healthy, as strong, as intelligent, as bright, as wise as these young Jewish men. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than the others. Now chapter 2 tells us of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And Nebuchadnezzar, if you know the story, had a dream which he forgot. During the night when he had had the dream, it was vivid and he was aware in his subconscious state that this was a dream and it was what was going on was real to him. But in the morning... He remembered he had a dream, but he couldn't remember one tiny bit of the content of the dream. And so he summoned his astrologers and his wise men and all that occult bunch. They said, now you guys are going to do something for me. You've got to tell me what the dream consisted of. What was it that I dreamt? And then he said, you've got to interpret it for me. And the, these people must have shaken their heads and they, they said as humbly as they could, well, the king was asking the impossible. If the king would tell them what he had dreamt, yes, they could interpret the dream for him, but he had to tell them. But he couldn't tell them because he'd forgotten. So being the, the, the dictator he was, he warned them that if they didn't tell them what the dream was and interpret it, off with their heads. Oh dear. But he was going beyond that. He decided in that context to execute all the so-called wise men, now remember these four Jewish boys were now included in the sort of wise men being trained for the king's service. So they were going to be executed as well. And the bold Daniel goes to the king and asks for time so that he may seek help to explain what the king wants to know. Yes, the king agreed to give him time. And Daniel goes to tell his friends and shares this with them and urges them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends were not executed. And during the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. This is the first piece of equipment that this young man was given for his amazing life and ministry. Revelation. Revelation. Revelation is just a big word for uncovering, unveiling something that has been there in existence but was not knowable because it was hidden. Like opening the curtains and you see what's outside clearly. That's Revelation. And Daniel 
had a, had a dream himself during the night in a vision this whole thing that Nebuchadnezzar had was revealed to him quite astonishing is it not so he has his session with the king and the king says to him are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it and Daniel humbly says well actually no wise man or anybody else can do that but, but, and here's one of the glorious buts of scripture, but he says there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries he has shown the king what will happen in days to come your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you lay in your bed are these and Daniel spelled out the whole thing to him there and then with a highly predictable result because the result was that Daniel finishes up the interpretation of the dream by saying the great God has shown the king what will take place in the future the dream is true and the interpretation is trustworthy and then the king falls prostrate before Daniel and pays him honour this cruel, vicious monarch, this dictator, is on the floor at Daniel's feet. And the king says to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods, and the Lord of kings, and the revealer of mysteries. For you were able to reveal this mystery. Yes. Yes. If we go over to Ephesians, into the New Testament... And consider again what Paul was saying to the Christians at Ephesus in Turkey. He was telling them he was praying for them, and he tells them what he was praying for them. He says there in verse 17, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Revelation. Here it comes again. Revelation and wisdom communicated by the Holy Spirit. The spirit of wisdom and revelation. That's what I'm praying for you guys in Ephesus. Paul writes and tells them. And he tells them the purpose of his praying along these lines. Not that their heads will be stuffed with more knowledge, but that they may know God better. That their relationship with God might be enriched and enhanced, that they might know their Heavenly Father better because of the revelation and wisdom they have received. Well, of course, that ties in very neatly with what our Lord Jesus told his disciples in his farewell talk that they could and should expect with the coming of the Holy Spirit. He said in John 14, The Counselor of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and remind you of everything I've said to you. He will unfold things to you. He will reveal things to you that you couldn't otherwise know. And in chapter 16, he backs it up by saying the spirit of truth comes. He will guide you into all truth. Now when we turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, we're looking at a very, very important verse in scripture. Because this is what Paul wrote in what was probably his last ever letter written to anybody. And he says there, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. What for? That the man of God, the woman of God, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. 
You see, Revelation is here from cover to cover in this book. This is full of Revelation. And the sad thing is, the sad thing is that so many Christians don't read this very much. Well, they come to church Sundays and listen to a preacher explaining a bit of the scriptures. But I have been dismayed in recent years to discover here and there Christians who have been Christians for years. And they don't read the Bible at home. Well, they're missing out on precious, essential revelation that God would give them. If they would take time before God to read the word of God and ask for the Holy Spirit to open it up to them. Revelation. That's part of our God-given equipment. And that was part of Daniel's equipment that set him on the course that he embarked on with great success throughout his career. What was the second thing that contributed to his success? Revelation? Yes. And, secondly, promotion. Because no sooner have we read that the king has acknowledged that Daniel's God is the true God and he's been able to reveal the mystery. But then the next verse says, Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, his friends, administrators over the province of Babylon. This is amazing. In one day, the whole political situation changes dramatically in Babylon. Instead of Babylon being ruled by this ruthless dictator monarch, he now appoints a God-fearing prime minister, a believer in the living God, a man who knows God. And guess what? Daniel, the Prime Minister, newly appointed of Babylon, gets to choose his cabinet and he chooses his, his believing friends. He says to Nebuchadnezzar, I want these three guys as my cabinet. Can you imagine it? Can you imagine Westminster, Holyrood, a Christian Prime Minister, a Christian First Minister, and the cabinet, all Christians? Oh, it happened, the equivalent of that happened in Babylon two and a half thousand years ago. Our God can still do these things. Oh yes. And one of the keys you see here to Daniel's ministry was the promotion he got. Now I have known people who were offered promotion at work and they turned it down. They said, well, yes I would get a bigger salary if I took the promotion. But you know what? I would have added responsibilities and I might just find them a bit too much and they might just put too much pressure on me and I won't tell them my family and they say no thanks to the promotion. If you're ever offered promotion, just be careful you don't turn it down. God might just be in it and God might just be saying, hey, don't you dare turn down that promotion. I've organized this for you because that promotion is going to help you. To be in a position of influence that you wouldn't otherwise have. Hmm, very interesting. Daniel, the defilement he resolved to avoid, the equipment he received for his task, and the fulfillment he found in his work. The fulfillment he found in his work. 
Well, the ministry he exercised as Prime Minister virtually of Babylon, he, his ministry spanned about 70 years. This was not an election took place five years later and Labour knocked out the Conservatives. No, he was in the business for about 70 years. When God put him in place for a purpose, he kept him there for a long time. And the ministry he exercised pointed to, number one, the existence of God. As we saw, as he said to Nebuchadnezzar, I can't explain your dreams, not in human power to do these things, but, 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 there's a God in heaven, and because I know him, I'm able to help you. And that's, that's our testimony as Christians, isn't it? That's the basic thing of our testimony. Even before we start talking about Jesus, our lives should be pointed to the fact that we don't just live at this monotonous, horizontal level, interacting every day in our life with human beings only. No, no, we do that as well. But more important than all of that, we interact with heaven every day. We're in touch with heaven every day. As a God whom we know as our Abba Father. No wonder we live differently from the unbelievers. And when believers are calm in the face of worrying, frightening situations and they don't seem to have any anxiety whatsoever and the non-Christian neighbors say, how do you do it? There is a God in heaven and I know him and you could know him too. And our witness is beginning to get more and more to the point. Oh, isn't that thrilling? His ministry pointed again and again to the existence of God. And, quite amazingly, if you know the story, you know what's coming. Quite amazingly, his ministry pointed to the kingdom of God and of his Christ, of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, as, as Daniel explained the dream to Nebuchadnezzar, when we come to chapter 2, verse 44, he says, In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom and will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. Hmm. Well, well, well. But there's more to it than that. Because, you see, we turn over to chapter 7, and we find this time it's Daniel who's doing the dreaming. Huh. Daniel is doing the dreaming and he shares what he was shown in his dream and his vision and he says there in 7.13 in my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven he approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence he was given authority, glory, sovereign power all peoples, nations and men of every language worshipped him his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed turn the pages to Matthew chapter 26 our Lord Jesus is on trial before the Jewish high priest and the high priest has the authority to demand an answer from the prisoner and he says I charge you under oath by the living God tell us, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God, with no hesitation, Jesus replies, Yes, it is as you say. 
But I say to all of you, in future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Isn't that extraordinary? Isn't that amazing? That two and a half thousand years ago, Daniel in his vision was given a vision of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is still away in the future somewhere. Hasn't even happened yet. And yet this man saw it in vision two and a half thousand years ago. So his ministry didn't only point to the existence of God. It pointed beyond that to the ultimate triumph of the God of the universe when he will bring all things under his control and authority and dominion and the Lord Jesus Christ will be the Lamb on the throne, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. Oh, isn't that terrific? How amazing is that? Daniel was given enormous privileges, enormous responsibilities. They began when he refused to compromise there was the defilement he resolved to avoid and then there was the equipment he received which was in some ways highly unusual and yet and yet, the first part of it, Revelation is essential for all believers in God how can we know God really well how can we serve the Lord in the way he wants unless we receive Revelation why do you come here on Sunday mornings because you want a little more Revelation you're hungry. You're hungry. What's God, go, what's God going to say to me today? What further understanding is he going to give me today? What fresh inspiration is he going to give me today? Ah, oh, revelation. It's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. It's amazing. And because of the defilement that is all to avoid and the equipment he received in his task, there was the fulfillment that he found in his work he knew in his heart that he was serving the God of heaven he knew in his, his heart that God had spared him for this long life he had to go on into old age serving his wonderful heavenly father let's pray